Lucky you. 36 you best holes in golf. Alternate Shots Podcast. Barney's Army. Where we talk about Sandy. golf. Poker. James Bond. Horse racing. Double. Classic movies. Zenyatta. We have no script. Down the stretch they come. We are glad you joined us. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. <laughs> Driving down the Merritt Parkway with my dad in his blue Mercedes, and he had just got the Nora Jones CD. And he loved that Nora Jones CD. And he, I think he liked the fact that he knew how to work his CD player and that he could burn a disc or whatever it was. So we listened to that thing over and over and over again. Well, Billy, Billy Regan, we're really lucky today. I would like to get started by thanking Cody Gifford for coming on uh, our Alternate Shots podcast. Billy and I like to talk about classic movies, and, and we hope to dive into that. But welcome to the show. Absolutely. Thanks for welcome having me. aboard, Cody. What's, what's not to like? A good movie is a good movie irrespective of when it was made, right? I don't like a movie simply because it was born out of a certain era or, or, or what have you. And I think the masters, there are masters in every generation, right? And the, the auteur theory and all of that. I mean, that's that's some highfalutin stuff, right? And uh, I mean, as a consumer, a good movie is a good movie. As a creator, I, 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 I mean, I'm trying to think. Obvious ones like Sunset Boulevard go, you know, Billy Wilder and uh, things like, like Matt Preston Sturges. Uh, directors and films uh, I mean we different different periods we go all the way back to the the earlier studio days and uh, I mean I I did my degree in in cinema studies at SC way back when and we can go all the way back to like the Lumiere brothers and uh, uh, DW Griffith and so you you fire away man if I'm uh if I'm out of water on some of these I'll tell you but uh what do you guys you like? you, you you just described um what we were actually talking about with your dad and uh, Arnold Palmer is the platform from which all these other movies came. So as, as John Wolfe, who I mentioned before, once said to me, <clears throat> you see slapstick and you think, you know, how silly, but think of the first guy that proposed that to somebody walks in an office and says, you know what we ought to do. We ought to have the guy tip over in his chair, slide across the room, bang his head on the wall, have a clock fall on his head, bowling ball rolls, back, you know, yeah, they would have looked at him like he had two heads, and yet slapstick came along and and became a whole genre. So pioneers are necessary, and the guys today who interpret what I would call the the uh, guts of a movie and make movies based on that are are the guys that I really appreciate today and and from back then. You know, that are more interested in plot plot twists, camera angles, and all of that than they are in uh, you know celebrity roles. Sometimes, yeah. as I've said to Bob before, sometimes, you know, a movie's more about the actor than the than the movie. And I, I don't think that should ever be true. I think the movie, it, like the sport, is the important thing. And, and I think the movie is the important thing. Yeah. I'm I think you. about, too, with um, with even going not just in service of the story, but in service of their fellow actors and creators and technicians. Like you look at how United Artists was founded, right, with yeah. um, Charlie Chaplin and. Mary Pickford and uh, Douglas Fairbanks, right? The the yeah. wanting to take power away that had sort of been monopolized in these in these homes. Yeah, they, they were, were subject to contracts. They were traded like like commodities. Yes. The stars were right. So bringing that agency back, and then you had this flourishing of um, of of really really amazing product thereafter when you give the creators 
the ability to go and do what they want to do and what they're inspired to do. And then, and then, then, and then with that, of course, then come along the, the talent agents and then the whole thing. And, sure. But, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, to, I'm totally, I'm totally, what is, I mean, what's in service of the story of the story of the story of the story. I, I think today, you know, we, we usually lean towards classic movies and you always say Alfred Hitchcock and, you know, Billy Wilder and, I think Guy Ritchie and the Cone Brothers um, today are are the ones that attract my attention the most. Quentin Tarantino to a degree, although sometimes he's a little extreme. But who tells a story better than Guy Ritchie these days? Mm. The, the way he presents the story, the mm -hmm. plot lines are good. The characters are always terrific. You know, yeah. pure entertainment. What did you think of The Gentleman? I loved it. I, I did too. I was so surprised by it. I, I knew nothing other than... I, I see the cast and then yep. I know it's a Guy Ritchie movie. And I remember walking in, I, I watched it by myself in Santa Monica. I think it was right before the pandemic. Yep. And Erica, Erica, my wife was away with her family that weekend. I said, I'm, you know what? I haven't been to the movies in God knows how long and I miss it. And it was a Guy Ritchie movie. And I remember walking out right onto Ocean Avenue there in Santa Monica and thinking that was a fantastic movie. It, it's funny you say that because I, I hadn't been to the movies in a long time either. But I always keep my eye out for, as I tell my kids, Godzilla or King Kong, I have to go. I'm obligated. Or Guy Ritchie. So <clears throat> I went with a friend and saw the gentleman. And I liked it the way you did so much. I actually went back and saw it again the next day in the mm. movie theater. So I've been to the movie theater maybe 10 times in 10 years. And two of them were two days in a row for that movie. Uh-huh. And yeah. you mentioned the Coen brothers, too. And I, I was reading about, I think I, it was maybe even Business Insider. Some, there was an article with Denis Villeneuve, the great uh, French-Canadian filmmaker who's now like the hottest director in Hollywood. And he really is a, um, he's a student, you know, of the history of film. He knows his stuff, obviously. I mean, the guy's one of the best on, on planet Earth right now. But he was saying that No Country for Old Men was probably one of the best movies. I forget what it was of, uh, it was either in the last 50 years or maybe his all-time list. And he ranked it, if not at the, I'll have to go back and check that, Bob. I'll send you a link after, either at the top or very, very near the top. And I remember thinking, I think that came out in 2006 or seven, if I'm not mistaken. I remember seeing it when I was in high school. And wow, what a, I mean. There's two really kind of interesting uh features in that movie that are not mentioned or understated. There's no sound musical soundtrack. Mm-hmm. There's no, the only music in it is when he wakes up in Mexico and he's a Mexican band playing as part of the movie. And the other kind of unique thing is, is the three leading characters in that movie, Javier Bardem, Tommy Lee Jones and uh, Barbara Streisand's son. But anyway, the, the three leading characters are never in the same scene together. Mm -hmm. They're never on the screen at the same time together, which is very odd for a movie. And you, you end up watching it and at the end you think, okay, who, who really was, it, not in terms of pure screen time, but who really was the protagonist of that movie? And I think it's Tommy Lee Jones, right? Yeah. Yeah. And he yeah. tells that story about his father in the dream. And so actually oh. he was the younger man. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> and that's, and that's the, that's the title of the movie. No country right. for all, uh, for all men is, is that's Tommy Lee Jones. He's like, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, come across something I don't understand. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think that's yeah. a terrific movie. Yeah. Agreed. You need a strong agreed. stomach for it, but it's terrific. 
Well, Har- to just, I mean, just anytime Javier Bardem is on screen, yeah, you need to get his, uh, his, yeah, he's all American mafioso, the Johnny Roselli story. And what this is, and for those who don't know, Johnny Roselli was the National Crime Syndicate's man in Las Vegas. And he was always the guy behind the guy. He's not as well known, um, I guess, by the layman, the people who don't really focus on mafia stories. He's not He's not like an Al Capone or a um, Bugsy Siegel or Sam Giancana. Um, although in many ways he was just as influential. He was also the guy whom the CIA hired when the CIA wanted to assassinate Castro. Del Castro. Yeah. And they wanted to decapitate the Castro regime regime prior to an amphibious invasion, which ultimately yeah. became the, the known as the Bay of Pigs. Yeah, and so, the mafia's interest was to get their casinos back down in Cuba. That's exactly right. Cuba was the was Cuba was Las Vegas before Las Vegas really blossomed. Because it was completely deregulated under the Batista regime, right? It was a free for all, and it was, um, it was, I guess you'd call it maybe unbridled excess. Mm-hmm. And the mafia moved in with guys, guys like Giancana and Rosselli was sort of an emissary. He worked beneath Giancana out of Chicago, but then he they they sent him out west, and he was managing the the affairs on the west coast. Absolutely bananas, this guy's life story in, in different stages. I mean, he was at, he ends up shaking down Columbia Pictures and Harry Cohn for essentially operating control over the studio. So people don't realize that prior to, uh, you know, the Great Great Depression happens, 1929, 1930, the stock market crashes, the depression ensues, and Harry Cohn is looking to buy out his brother out of Columbia Pictures. And who's liquid at the time after the crash? Mm-hmm. Who has who has cash, right? Mm-hmm. Wall Street's not Wall Street's not too keen on it. The mafia, the National Crime Syndicate. So Rosselli ends up brokering a deal for the mafia to become a silent partner in Columbia Pictures all through the 1930s. And they're staying again behind the scenes up until they get caught, which they do get caught. And he ends up he ends up also infiltrating IATSE, which is sort of the stagehands and the projectionist union, right? An so international they, alliance for stage and theatrical employees. That's exactly right. Yeah. They end up planting a guy. And Billy, stop me if you know this already. I'm sure you do. They, they end up planting a guy named Willie Byoff in as president of IATSE, while Roselli is secretly pulling the puppet strings on Columbia Pictures. And what this would allow the mafia to do, and we're, we're talking now, again, 1930s, early 1940s, leading up to World War II. What this would allow the mafia to do would be to cook up or at least threaten the prospect of a projectionist strike. Uh-huh. So you can pour all the money you want into making a movie and cutting a film and scoring it and doing everything you want. But if the projectionists are going to walk out of the movie theaters en masse, yeah. you cannot, you're not going to recoup anything. Right. So he would leverage that position against the studios. And I kid you not, this this is all this is all based on this is not this 
sorry, it's not congressional testimony, but this was one of the greatest extortion schemes in the history of the U.S. legal system. And I'm so surprised that people don't know more about it because they do end up getting caught. But Johnny Rosselli and his coterie, they were shaking down the studios for fifty, hundred thousand dollars a year in cash. Guys like Jack Warner and his associates, whether it was Warner Brothers, whether it was Paramount, um, RKO, what, all the biggies back in the day, they would fly out personally to Manhattan and they would leave a bag of cash in his hotel suite every year so that they could quell a potential labor union that was orchestrated by the mafia. Right. The, kicker, the kicker to that also is that all through the 1930s, <clears throat> you can hear my enthusiasm, when the mafia had control, silent control over Colombia, they never lost money. They were always in the black. And and obviously, you know, that you're talking about Marilyn Monroe getting her start. You're talking about Frank Sinatra uh, having his resurgence. Um, this is not conspiracy. This is a matter of public record. And that is only the first phase of Johnny Rosselli's life until, they, like I said, they ultimately get caught. They spend a few years in prison. They make a few phone calls, they get out on parole or whatever it is that they do, and they're not allowed to go back to Los Angeles. So where do they go? They go to a little outpost in the middle of the Nevada desert called Las Vegas, and they take the racket on the road and enter Bugsy Siegel and the Flamingo and the Desert Sands and the Golden Nugget. And that's basically, you can that's the evolution, right? What started in Los Angeles spread to Nevada and then 1959, 1960, Fidel Castro comes roaring into Havana, and Johnny Rosselli gets a phone call from a guy named Bob Mayhew. Bob Mayhew was a former FBI agent and officer, I believe, in the OSS during World War II. He spent his time killing Nazis. He gets a call from Bob, who is Howard Hughes's number two, and he says he wants to have lunch at a place called the Brown Derby uh, restaurant in Beverly Hills. So they sit down for lunch together, Mayhew and Rosselli do, and Bob Mayhew says the U.S. government needs your help to kill a sovereign leader, and that sovereign leader was Fidel Castro. And there's a lot of debate over who actually put that order, sent that down the wire. Just getting to Johnny Fontaine never gets that part. That's right. That's right. Yeah, with a with a horse, there's a horse missing a head somewhere. Yeah. Um, so they're at the Brown Derby. This and by the way, this all really happened. This is a matter of congressional record, which came out during the Church Committee testimonies, um, which was an invest a Senate investigation into the improprieties in the intelligence community in the latter half of the last century. So just and, go back two steps. Who's at the the lunch at the Brown Derby again? The Johnny Rosselli. Yep. Johnny Rosselli and a guy named Bob Mayhew. And Bob Mayhew was a cutout for the CIA. He had top secret clearance and he was somebody the CIA used to, shall we say, interact or interface with criminal enterprises when the CIA didn't want to get their hands dirty. So you can understand in what was happening in 1960. There was a presidential election that year. So this was, or and I was I I was saying there's some there's some debate over who actually who is the uh, progenitor of this plan? Well, Richard Nixon was the vice president at the time under Ike. A lot of people say this was Nixon's idea. The election happens. Kennedy wins, of course. 
the die had already been cast leading up to the Bay of Pigs. So this was all in motion. So there are accusations that this was Jack Kennedy or Bobby Kennedy. They were the inheritors of this plan, right? Because Nixon was notoriously hawkish on Cuba and in com communism more broadly. So this, this, this story, and I mentioned, I showed you the book. The, we, I say we, my partner and I, my writing partner, John C. Richards, who wrote Paterno for HBO and Sahara for Paramount with Matthew McConaughey and Penelope Cruz, absolutely fantastic writer. I got the rights to this book a few years ago. We developed it during the pandemic and we're just now going out with it, doing the, the dog and pony show and doing a pitch and it's come a long way. But the story is about this ragtag group of spies and mafiosos hunkered down in South Florida and in Miami and in Key Largo, basically running clandestine operations to and from Cuba, trying to whack Castro and all of the ancillary things that come off of that spine which are, again, conspiracy theories surrounding what happened to JFK, which, by the way, are becoming more and more, or I guess you had to say, less and less uh, conspiratorial and more and more mainstream by the day as more and more information comes out. Um, it's a very, very topical story about all of the stuff that goes on beneath the surface of uh, American politics and geopolitics, right? So I've always been interested in that. I've always been interested. What is the real story? What is the real story? And we're basing our whole take on what we can prove people actually said. We're not deciding one way or another, this happened exactly this way, but this is exactly what this guy said happened at this point in time. And everybody can go and do their homework and see that we're not fudging it. So it is a crazy, crazy banana story. And uh, I hope the next time I'm on, if you invite me back on, I hope it'll be uh, on some stream or somewhere. Must be like oh. peeling back an onion, though. Every everywhere you look, you find more. A really stinky onion, Billy. Because, yeah. uh, I'll I'll give you a, a spoiler alert. Roselli, they find him dismembered in an oil drum floating off of Dumbfoundling Bay, right by Fort Lauderdale. Hmm. And that was guess what? That was one week after he testified to a closed Senate committee hearing on the assassination of JFK. Shortly after, Sam Giancana was shot twice in the back of the head in his Chicago home. And then plugged, I think, five more times in a in the uh, shape of a smile around his mouth. So and there's is a this lot before or after Kennedy was was killed? No, this well that so 1960 to 1963 is really the scope of when the meat when the meat and potatoes of all these operations were taking place. Obviously, Kennedy is is assassinated in '63. Flash forward, the church committee is happening. Yeah, 12, 13 years later. And um, I think Rosselli is ultimately killed in 70, 76. Any fan of uh, American history, or, you know, true American history, kind of people who want to know the truth about what happened. I, I, I go into every meeting when I'm trying to sell this project and I say, all right, I promise you I'm not one of those people with a tinfoil hat on. And then I, you know, I'll send him a PDF of the congressional record and the testimony of all of the government agents who came with their head between, you know, tail between their legs saying, yeah. We did try to do this. The exploding cigars, Castro's exploding cigars are real. Uh, the mis His mistress that we recruited to kill him did get cold feet, and she ended up not killing him but making love to him. I don't know what else to say. So you thinking, <laughs> you know, Castro dodged a lot of bullets. What is the real story behind the nexus between organized crime and the U.S. government working together? Yeah. So there are, unfortunately, uh, other instances where that took place. And really begs the question when 
when the U.S. government is subcontracting murder, <laughs> it's like who really is the gangster and who's the patriot? And that's the other kind of interesting part of Rosselli's story is that he was um, he was born in Italy, came over the transatlantic crossing. His father was a shoemaker working at a factory in East Boston, slaving away to bring his family over from the Cosa Nostra, really to get them away from mafia influence in Italy. And they come over early. Rosselli's born in 1905. I think they come over sometime in the mid-19-teens. And right when Rosselli and his mom and his siblings get here, his father dies in 1918 in the last great pandemic this country saw. Whoa. So he ends up, you have this young boy in East Boston who doesn't speak English, who's now the eldest and has to take care of his mother, who shacks up with a boyfriend who's beaten the hell out of her, and his siblings. So he tries to take his father's job at the factory. And then he tries to also get a job wearing his father's dairy uniform, delivering milk. And he realizes very quickly, he can make a hell of a lot more money selling morphine on the docks than he can doing that. And it's that decision that he makes, which ends up leading again in a straight line all the way at the end of his life to being in a barrel. But what he always loved is that when he did have time with his father, when he came over to America, he always believed in this great dream that was the American dream. And his father desperately believed in it, that hard work and that that ethos you could elevate, one could elevate oneself to great things in this country, which I certainly subscribe to. And I think a lot, I would imagine both you guys do too. But when the government comes around at the end of his life, this is a guy who volunteered to fight in war. This is a criminal who volunteered to fight in World War II because he believed in the cause and he was denied because he had tuberculosis. So when the government comes around, they offer him $150,000 cash to do this. And he turns it down. He turns, he doesn't want the money. He says he'll do it out of a sense of patriotism. <laughs> and the government, the government didn't believe him. They said that we, we can't imagine that you would be so honorable as to do that. And to his credit, he paid his own way. And every time he's going back and forth to Las Vegas to Miami, he didn't take a dime. There's a difference so, between organized crime and disorganized crime. Yeah, yeah, yeah maybe. Uh, I went over to him and I introduced myself and I said, excuse me, sir. Um, it's a pleasure to meet, you know, sirs, it's a pleasure to uh, uh, meet you both. I just, I'm just um, in awe of, of what you guys have accomplished and whatever I said, I probably sounded like an idiot like I do now. But, um, and I, then I said, and they're both very, you know, gentlemanly, of course, and very respectful, but they're kind of looking at me like, all right, you know, here's just some other schmuck who's coming up to bother us when we're on our vacation on our way to dinner or whatever. And then I ended by saying, you know, my, my father had the great fortune to, um, to call some of your matches. And it was Arnold who turned around and he said, oh, yeah, what's, what's your father's name? And I said, my father's Frank Gifford. And his eyes got really big. Same with Lee's. And Lee came over and gave me a hug. He, they were just the coolest guys you can ever imagine. And Arnold Palmer, I'll never forget, he said, when you see your father, you please say that I said hello to him. And I was, and that's like, sounds silly, but the way he, the way, I mean, he's Arnold Palmer, right? You know, I was, I, the way he said it and the way he looked, there was like a genuine degree of recognition and respect that this guy had for my dad. You got millions of Frank Gifford stories and that's why you're coming back along with more importantly, this uh, Johnny Roselli story. Well, when you see Erica after you part from us here, tell her, Thanks. Nice nudge. I'd be I'd be nothing if not for that elbow. Guys, it was such a pleasure. Thanks for joining Casper. us today. 
Billy Harmon. We really appreciate your Double feedback. Indemnity. And please Marky. subscribe to Two the show. Adder. And hit Claude the bell Harmon. icon so you get notified. Movie classics. New episodes. Mark Gable. Hit them hard. Job. And hit them off. That's 36 holes.